Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Central Asia is not directly involved in the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict, Russia's full-scale war in Ukraine, or the latest fighting in the Middle East, but these events have an impact on Central Asia. Central Asian governments need to publicly state their policy on these events and often need to be very careful to balance any comments they make. And these official policies might not always be in line with how many of the people of their countries feel. So how are these foreign conflicts affecting Central Asia? To discuss all this, I am joined by Joseph Epstein, a legislative fellow at the Endowment for Middle East Truth, who focuses on post-Soviet space and Middle East, Mukhtar Singh Girbay, managing editor at RFARL's Kazakh service, known locally as Azatik, and Salim Jan Ayob, director of RFARL's Tajik service, known locally as Azadi. Mukhtar, I'd like to start with you, and then let's start with the Azerbaijani-Armenian conflict. You know, Ar- Armenia is a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Kazakhstan is also a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Armenia even sent troops to Kazakhstan in, in January 2022 during the violence there. But yet Kazakhstan's policy, the government's policy, seems to be very pro-Azerbaijani. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it was pro-Azerbaijani. I mean, uh, from the government perspective, it was um, neutral. But uh, the public opinion was, of course, uh, uh, inclined towards Azerbaijan because of the because it's a Turkic nation, it's uh, a Muslim nation, and Kazakh people mostly Kazakh-speaking people considered this uh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh problem as uh, their own problem mostly. And this conflict and the uh, overall uh, situation around that, they uh, consider it as as this solution of the problem, mostly. But in terms of the government, our correspondents and the other journalists, we tried to ask this question uh, when this question arose, arose when um, if uh, Kazakhstan is uh, helping Armenia, as Armenia did in 2022 during the January events in Kazakhstan, and uh, the government officials uh, have been um, hesitant to to, dis- uh, to discuss this issue because it said that if uh, there will be a decision, we'll, we will make uh, further steps. That was a very cautious statement from the government side. What about state media and independent media out there? I know you are also independent media, but how do they report? How did they report on this? Independent media, we just covered the situation in general, providing the uh, a report from the uh, from the field. Uh, but in general, I think the uh, for the state media, it was one of the uh, conflicts going around the world, and they tried to cover it as uh, as uh, neutrally as possible. There was no clear expression of any opinion on that. Okay, thanks. Um, Salim John, let me go to you, because Tajikistan is also a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. How did the government d- to respond to the both, both the conflict that happened a, a couple of years ago, or last year, and, um, and the one that just broke out again? Officially, Tajikistan uh, is keeping a kind of uh, neutral position. Uh, they are not making any statement that could be seen as a uh, showing their real position. But on the ground, so we are witnessing a lot of meetings between Tajik and uh, Azeri officials, and uh, especially uh, if uh, people remember 
uh, he was honorary uh, guest uh, in September 14 uh, Central Asian Leaders Summit. And we have been receiving a lot of news that uh, connection relationship between uh, different uh, entities of the uh, Azeri and Tajik government is increasing. But on the uh, lower level, I, I mean, on the, on the public opinion, it's, uh, it's changing. Although at the beginning, uh, a lot of people, a lot of journalists uh, have been writing that Armenian, uh, Armenians are like uh, Tajiks, suffered a lot during the history. And uh, so if they are living in a Nagorno-Karabakh enclave, um, the, their rights should be observed, uh, their language, their culture should, should be uh, observed and so on. But now uh, either a lot of them are keeping silence uh, or uh, time to time we have seen uh, kind of uh, support for Azerbaijan that Azerbaijan is uh, recreating historical truths and uh, of course Nagorno-Karabakh is an Azeri territory and it should be like this so that then but at the same time uh, we are seeing that kind of empathy to Armenians uh, who uh, either left uh, the region or are staying so mixed, uh, mixed reaction, I could say. But uh, again, about the official reaction, uh, officially or, or publicly, they are not uh, saying anything uh, that could be uh, that could give something for for the analysis. Okay, thank you, um, Joseph. Let me bring you into the conversation here. Now, you know, we've been our Armenia and Azerbaijan are, are both members of the collective. Or, I mean, uh, the Commonwealth of Independent States. Looking at it from the Central Asian perspective, is this this must be unsettling, right? To see that there's this conflict is is still ongoing, although possibly it might be resolved uh, for at least a little while, considering the results of the most recent fighting. But um, if you're in Central Asia and you're also and you're watching two members of the same and political entity, Commonwealth of Independent States, going at this. Uh, how how unsettling could that, must that be for the governments in Central Asia to watch this and wonder what happens if it ends up in their back in their region? I don't know if it is unsettling. I think from what we've seen from Central Asian governments is that they have been very good at sort of balancing their reactions to it. Of course, they are publicly pro-Azerbaijan. They also, you know, reflect the sentiment by congratulating Azerbaijan on its latest uh, seizure of the Karabakh region. Um, at the same time, they have good relations with Armenia, and there isn't a large amount of anti-Armenian sentiment within the country. So I don't really think this conflict will be so likely as to end up causing problems for Central Asia. Do you think it's worrying that there's any, some kind of precedent being set here? What, I mean, even Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan have, have, have had two border conflicts. Are they worried about what happens when one side gets what it wants and the other side loses? When it comes to the Tajik question, to be honest, I uh, I'm not an expert on Tajikistan. I think Salim Jan uh, would be better to answer that question. However, I can say that in the case of Azerbaijan and Armenia, they did have this enclave that was internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan. I think when it comes to the Tajik-Kyrgyz border dispute, it's a lot less 
clear, I would say, in, in terms of the law. Although, Salim John, please correct me if that's incorrect. Go ahead, Salim John. Yeah, I was just wondering, you know, that, that it, here's Azerbaijan seems to have resolved the conflict uh, to its satisfaction, certainly not to Armenia's satisfaction. Is there any worries in Tajikistan considering there is some territorial dispute with Kyrgyzstan that, that uh, you could end up losing? The, the the battle on some of your territory and everyone will accept that and you you just end up having to to deal with the situation as it, as it resulted yeah in general uh, all those conflicts not only uh, let's say uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia I mean a war in the Nagorno Karabakh and uh, uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine all of them, of course, are making uh, people in Tajikistan uh, worry, uh, very concerned, and, uh, because especially the, the uh, generation who, who went through the, the civil war in 1992-97 and those who particularly uh, strongly perceived the border conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan in April 2021 and September 2022, they it's looking like uh, the Turkish, uh, the Turkish factor, uh, the support of Turkey that people think that provided Azeri side to win in Karabakh, uh, of course, and uh, a lot of news about close relationship between Turkey and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, you should uh, undoubtedly uh, made people worried that uh, what will happen if the, the new uh, round of the conflict happens. However, what is uh, good that uh, both uh, governments uh, of uh, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan uh, looking like coming closer and closer to the conclusion to, to uh, solve this border issue and that is giving some hopes that uh, probably uh, those two countries uh, will uh, somehow avoid the next round of the conflict. Okay, thanks. Um, let's let's move on to Russia's full-scale war in Ukraine and what that's doing to the society. Uh, and Mukhtar, I'll come back to you. I mean, this has been really unsettling for Kazakhstan, right? You know, the, the, it seems like pump, public sympathy is with Ukraine, but the government's been very careful to keep them from protesting. Can you talk about that, how this has affected Russia's war in Ukraine has affected the social situation in Kazakhstan? Yeah, I would point uh, out the two conflicting trends on this impact of Russian aggression into uh, into the Kazakhstani society in general. Uh, and it says uh, about the further polarization in the country. One trend is the national awakening, the sort of looking for the distinct national identity and culturally and linguistically, politically, and mentally distancing from Russia. Uh, this included numerous uh, public initiatives uh, to learn Kazakh language, for example, uh, more frequent reference to the history, etc. We, as a tech, uh, for example, covered uh, lots of people, uh, uh, including ethnic Germans, ethnic Koreans, Russians, founding their language centers to learn Kazakh language. This kind of trend is uh, going on and it's becoming more and more active. But it's, at the same time, uh, the second uh, issue is that uh, reliance on the Russian propaganda and naming the war as SVO, for example, 
even supporting the actions of Putin. So these two trends are conflicting each other, and it's becoming more and more difficult for the government to uh, maneuver between these two uh, conflicting sides of the society. And there were there was an interesting interview that we uh, our correspondent uh, had with the head of the uh, one of the leading parties in Kazakhstan, Agzol Party. Uh, he is a member of Majlis. Uh, he is uh, Azamat Abildaev. And he openly stated that he supports this SVO and uh, Zelensky should be um, arrested. And this made a very big influence in the political establishment, let's say. And he was dismissed from the party. And he is only one example of how it is uh, uh, these two conflicting ideas are visible in, in the society. And we also published public opinion study uh, done by a Demosco NGO, which says that uh, uh, 13% of the uh, respondents think that Russia is working, we're, we're fighting against the Nazis in, in Ukraine. This is 13%. And 28% say that uh, Russia is occupying, trying to occupy Ukraine. So, and another 18% say that Russia is fighting against uh, West against NATO, NATO in Ukraine. And this kind of conflicting ideas, trends, visible from our publications, especially in the northern parts of this country, uh, neighboring with Russia, uh, for example, uh, in western Kazakhstan, Uraisk, which is in, uh, in three hours from Samara, the biggest uh, regional city of Russia, and there was a case when the local population boycotted uh, the local newspaper in Rysk, which uh, supported uh, the uh, Ukraine in this conflict. Any idea what the conversation is on social networks? Who they seem to favor? Yeah, it's mostly social networks. But uh, at the very beginning, when the war started, there, there were demonstrations, as you said. There were protests in Almaty, in other cities. And the government, uh, it was allowed. I mean, uh, the beginning, the first uh, part of the, uh, at the very beginning, they were openly protesting. There were lots of people in the street with the Ukrainian flags. And But then I think the government uh, understood the, uh, that it's, it's becoming uncontrolled protests and uh, tried to distance from the... Uh, anti-war sentiments and uh, as much as possible and uh, there were lots of cases uh, examples of that when uh, for example uh, the Ukrainian ambassador to Kazakhstan Rublyovsky he uh, gave an interview with the Kazakh blogger uh, and then he was this uh, he he left the country when when we asked what was the reason for that uh, there was an interesting uh, statements from the government that he was he, he dismissed his position i mean the kazakh government tried to distance itself from this uh, conflict as much as possible and uh, it was visible from the concerts from the concerts of um, the propaganda and the concerts of those who were supporting the ukrainian side and they were conflicting statements among these um, organizers of these concerts. And it's visible mostly um, on social media. 
Well, thank you. Um, Salim John, Tajik government's obviously very close to the Russian government and not going to say much about this. Uh, and then, of course, there's there's uh, hundreds of thousands of Tajik citizens who are migrant laborers in Russia, too. But what, what's your sense of what the public opinion is about this conflict, uh, about Russia's war in, in Ukraine? You know, I mean, it, it's Ukraine today, but that was a former Soviet Republic. Putin and other officials have said that they consider historic Russian land to be what the Soviet Union was, the same territory as the Soviet Union. How do people feel about that in Tajikistan? Since there is no uh, study on public opinion in Tajikistan, like in Kyrgyzstan, Mukhtar has uh, mentioned some uh, public opinion group uh, research, uh, there is nothing uh, like that. Uh, there are some some groups, some some uh, centers, public opinion centers, but uh, they are not touching different difficult topics, uh, sensitive topics, let's say. And if you remember the, uh, the beginning of the of the Ukrainian uh, of the conflict in uh, Ukraine. Uh, all the uh, media outlets were visited by the uh, National Security Service curators and was told that not to touch this topic. And that's why probably all the radio also is giving uh, first-hand uh, information about the conflict. So we, that's why there's no study of the public opinion. It's difficult to fully understand or judge that what the Tajik society is thinking about uh, that. However, uh, also is doing, time to time is doing some books properly and sometimes a round table discussion among experts. And I could say that uh, the public opinion in the country during the conflict in Ukraine changed very much. Let's say uh, at the beginning, the pro-Russian mood prevailed, of course, like uh, you mentioned, Bruce, because of uh, about one million Tajik migrants working in Russia and sending money back to Tajikistan uh, to the families. But by the middle of this year, uh, as we again uh, invited uh, mostly the same experts and the same um, people, and we have said, seen that uh, the support of Russia is re reducing, uh, and uh, one can feel more of Ukrainian opinion. So uh, we don't know why, only because uh, yeah, uh, one million about one million migrants in Russia. Yes, they are sending money. Yes, but first of all. Um, there was a lot of uh, uh, police raids against migrants in Russia, not only against Tajiks, but against many others. And a lot of Tajiks were detained, were brutally beaten, and all that went through the social media and giving to the people uh, an opinion, an opinion that why they should suffer so much. This is one point, and second, a lot of uh, Tajiks were sent to the war in Ukraine without their wish, especially those who through the government from Russian uh, jails and others, and this also played a role. 
but of course, uh, the people are uh, have been receiving more information about what is going on in reality in, in Ukraine. And uh, as you mentioned, the uh, conflict in Afghanistan, the opponents of those who support Russia say, no, if they will come and invade your, your land, so you will, you will not sit down and invade. That's why the Ukrainian, Ukrainians are heroes. They are defending their, their own homes, houses, uh, wives and kids and so on. So now it's difficult. Again, if we have, this, uh, we have, we have some uh, really um, neutral uh, and uh, active uh, public uh, opinion uh, study center, it, we can see that probably the pro-Ukrainian uh, mood prevails. Okay, thank you. Um, Joseph, let me get to you. Um, you know, uh, considering the situation now, the Central Asian governments are, are clearly in a bad place where they have to really be on the, they're walking the tightrope here when they have to do this, but their public sees this too. I mean, at best, the Central Asian governments can say, we're neutral in this conflict, right? But but they might not even feel that way. They might even pri- privately kind of side with Ukraine. But how how, how does that interact with the public's view on this? I mean, is is there a risk for the Central Asian governments that by not by not showing that they they're against this Russian aggression that they they are actually uh, not in tune with what the public feels? When it comes to the public, I do think there's a split amongst the older and younger generations. I think the older generation, especially the one that lived in the Soviet Union, is more prone to be pro Russia. And the younger generation is more prone to be pro-Ukraine. However, I don't think that this will be a deciding factor on whether or not they go out to the streets. And I don't think it will really threaten any of the leaders politically. I think, if anything, this conflict may even, in some ways, be good for Central Asia. And the reason that I say this is because Central Asia is in this precarious position of being between empires. They're between the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians. And the fact of the matter is, is that due to the war in Ukraine, Russian capacity has severely been reduced. And so that means they're able to exert a lot less pressure on Central Asian countries. And because of this, We've actually seen some cases where Central Asia has opposed the Moscow line, albeit not very hardly, but they they are able to stay neutral. They are able to, for example, get rid of that member of parliament who said that Zelensky should be arrested and things like that. So you don't think there'll be any price to pay for the Central Asian governments when this conflict is over, that they were uh, they weren't weren't willing to side with one side or the other? I don't think so. I think traditionally also this has been Central Asian policy to remain as neutral as possible. It's the multi-vectored approach that they speak about so often. And in the past, this hasn't been very dangerous to them. I think the place where it could be more dangerous actually is, is the conflict between Israel and Gaza just because of the mobilizing and radicalizing effect of the Palestinian issue on uh, Muslim populations. But I think when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, no matter how strong uh, some may feel about it, it, it still is, it, it feels like a war between others, I think, for the most part. 
Okay, thank you. And that's a good good uh, transition for me to get into the second part of the program, which will be on Israel and, and Gaza. But I want to remind that we're talking about uh, international conflicts, uh, in this case, Azerbaijan and Armenia, Russia and Ukraine, and, and we're about to get into Israel and Gaza, um, and how they, they how, what effects they have on, on Central Asia. And joining me for this discussion are uh, Mukhtar Singhirbai, the managing editor at RFRL's Kazakh service, known locally as Azatik, Salim John Ayo. Director of RFRL's Tajik Service, known locally as Azadi, and Joseph Epstein, a legal fellow, a legislative fellow at the Endowment for Middle East Truth, who focuses on post-Soviet space and Middle East. So let's get into that. The, the, the conflict now that's that's raging in the Middle East uh, between Israel and and the Palestinians. Uh, Joseph, I'll start with you too. I mean, how how unsettling is this for Central Asia? What does this change in in Central Asian sentiment and and the relationship between the public and the government? So, yeah, if, if you're a Central Asian leader, you should be very concerned. The Palestinian issue has a very large ability to mobilize and, and radicalize largely Muslim populations. We saw this, we're seeing this a lot more in the Russian-speaking world as well. This latest events in Dagestan, for example, coverage of this issue on Russian uh, language channels, especially in the Muslim world, the Muslim Russian speaking world has been pretty biased. I mean, they've pretty much, they, they've covered a lot about bombings in Gaza and women and children dying there. However, there was almost no coverage of the October 7th massacre, which saw some of the, some of the most horrific scenes, such as the beheading of babies, the, the mass rape of women, the kidnapping of the elderly, the torture of children in front of their parents, but we've seen very little coverage of that in the post-Soviet space. We've seen a lot of coverage, however, of, for example, as I mentioned, women and children dying in Gaza without much mention that Hamas actually uses them as human shields. The reason why this is a big issue is because there is a dormant extremism in Central Asia, especially in countries like Uzbekistan. I, I would say that that's the most at-risk country and I believe that the leader should be paying more attention to how this, this cause could rile up their populations, get them into the streets, and possibly lead to things like uh, international conflict. We've already seen in Kazakhstan, for example, there was a doctor that said she wouldn't treat Jewish patients because of what's going on in, in Gaza. And Uzbekistan this week, actually, there was an attack on two uh, Jewish members of the Chabad organization. So I, I think in terms of it, this, I think Central Asian leaders should view this as a threat to their stability and be very careful with how they approach this cause. Okay, thanks. Um, Salim John, let me go to you with this to follow up on that. I mean, wh what position does this put the Tajik government in? I mean, on the, on the one hand, it's very easy to, to make this a black and white issue and say, you know, that, that most people in Tajikistan, almost everyone is a Muslim. Uh, there's fellow Muslims that are suffering. It, it's easy to, to have sympathy for them. But And yet the government, it, as, as Joseph was explaining, one, you you risk having having Islam as a unifying factor again. You don't want to, you don't want to, uh, fan the flame, so to speak, of that. And not to mention that this was started by Hamas, which is recognized as a terrorist group. And this is exactly the kind of group that the Tajik government doesn't want to see any, any, any kind of group like that in Tajikistan. So what's the, what's the situation for the Tajik government with this? The Tajik government made only one statement, uh, if you remember, when there was an explosion in the hospital. 
and based on the initial uh, unchecked, unverified news that it was uh, Israeli rocket, and uh, they made a statement uh, condemning the strike on, on the hospital, not naming Israel, but meaning that it was uh, Israel who is responsible for this blast and uh, asked the both sides uh, to stop actions and to start uh, negotiations. And that's it. It was the, the only statement that we heard from, from the Tajik officials. And now, as uh, it was uh, about uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine, so the Tajik mass media official, state controlled media, uh, a lot uh, have uh, a lot about the conflict. Only uh, one or two short news. They are trying not to to bring uh, more information and more videos. Uh, but a fierce uh, discussion is going on on social media, uh, asking why the Tajik government, especially. Then two days ago, I think the Uzbek president uh, made a statement that they uh, stand uh, beside the Palestinians and uh, decided to send 1.5 million aid to Gaza. Uh, a lot of people on the social media started asking the Tajik government that why you are not, why you are doing nothing uh, and uh, and accusing the government of being uh, pro-Israel. Of course, Hamas is a very interesting and very uh, proper, how to say, example for the Tajik government to compare it with the Islamic Renaissance Party and other groups and telling uh, the audience that, look, those type of people are doing that. And we witnessed the same propaganda rhetorics during ISIS uh, case, but this time, we are witnessing a complete silence about uh, either Hamas or others. So I think the Tajik government perfectly understand uh, as what uh, Joseph wrote uh, about how it, the topic is sensitive and could lead to some social unrest and so on. Um, and that's why probably they are. But on the other hand, um, the government supporters and uh, members of the uh, government uh, troll uh, response factory are actively exploiting the topic. They are uh, in completely different way. They are telling their look, whatever conflicts are happening there in the Middle East because there is no uh, normal leaders and Thanks God, uh, we have a, a leader of the nation like uh, Imam Ali Rahman, who uh, providing peace and harmony in our society, and uh, that and anyone who opposes uh, opposes him is an enemy of the of the nation, enemy of the peace and, and tranquility and stability and prosperity and so on. So this way uh, is so they are using. This way, the, the conflict in, in, in there. However, uh, just uh, last week we had a debate show that why uh, a group of, of uh, young Tajiks are very 
uh, how to say, um, active uh, on the social media, uh, accusing Israel and supporting Palestinians, even using some fake uh, photos uh, and fake news. And uh, but the same people are not active about you know, Tajik, Tajikistan's internal problems, uh, and uh, uh, they are not touching a lot of um, problems that the country has. So uh, one of the questions goes like that: um, the same kind of uh, if you if you think that uh, Israel is going to crack down on uh, Hamas or on civilians in, in Gaza. The same way was used by the Rahman's government against people in Gornabadashtan. But when it happened, no one said nothing. Uh, but today, all of you are uh, shouting and, and every day. And, so and the answer was uh, that the Tajik youth and overall the Tajik population are, are not political. Uh, no, they are apolitical, uh, and that's why uh, they are not interested in, in what is going on in their own country. So, uh, in, in some, I can say one thing that I do not support Joseph's idea that Rahman can be, can be uh, confident that nothing will happen in Tajikistan. Because, for example, if uh, there was some uh, protest and demonstration in Kyrgyzstan, uh, actually supported by the tragic segment of the social media, but nothing uh, like that is possible in Tajikistan. Constitution is given right for the people to come to the street and to, to say what they think, but the reality is not. So it's, uh, they will there will no uh, real. Demonstration in the country since, uh, let's say, 1993, I think, the last one. There was two different uh, gatherings and uh, rallies against the United Nations, against the uh, OECE, and they supported the opposition. And but they were masterminded by the government, and that's it. Okay, thank you, um, Mukhtar. How's the how's the Middle East conflict playing out in in Kazakhstan, both in terms of the government reaction and in terms of what the uh, public sentiment? What does the public think about this? Oh, uh, it's very similar to what uh, Salim Junaka said. People, uh, the public opinion in general, mostly it's uh, Islamic solidarity, uh, sense sense of um, aggression by Israel into Muslim people. This kind of sentiment is there. And we see it everywhere on our uh, publications on social media. There are lots of comments uh, saying that you are inclining into Israel, although we are trying to be objective and giving uh, the picture as it is. Yeah, it's there. And I agree with the, uh, uh, with the previous speaker about the uh, radicalization. We see lots of uh, comments on radical statements and saying that uh, Muslim people are suffering. But uh, from the government perspective, uh, as a career diplomat, uh, President uh, was trying to be as neutral as possible, it seems to me. Uh, first, he condemned the attacks by Hamas, saying that it's um, against the civilians and uh, 
uh, capturing of hostages is not uh, tolerated in the uh, in the world. In general, uh, trying to be as diplomat, but at the same time, he also uh, warned Israel to refrain from uh, using uh, the force dis- disproportionately. Uh, and uh, today, he made a statement uh, that the Kazakh government is providing humanitarian aid to Gaza people. So this kind of uh, neutrality is visible in the actions of the government. But also we have to consider that Kazakhstan has a very strong um, relationship with Israel in terms of oil exports to Israel. And uh, there was also a news about the Pegasus spyware that was developed by Israeli company, which is close to military of Israel. That was also interesting because this Pegasus spyware was used to against the journalists, against the NGO uh, people, to uh, um, hack their phones. And this, that's another part of this uh, relationship with Israel. And these are there, and uh, when the um, uh, analysts talk about this, they consider all these factors in terms of how Kazakhstani government is trying to be as neutral as possible. At the same time, I think they um, try to um, listen to the um, people who are supporting the um, Gaza population. And as Salim Jonaka said, people mostly um, have no uh, based knowledge on what is going on in the Middle East. For them, it's uh, just a continuation of the ongoing conflict. And uh, at the same time, as uh, also in Tajikistan, uh, government is trying to uh, use this rhetoric that uh, in all these, uh, among these, all these conflicting countries and regions, we are peaceful, we are prosperous, we are trying to have this peaceful atmosphere, peaceful um, peace in the society in general. Okay, thanks. Uh, well, we are at the, at the end of the show, but I'm going to give everyone a chance for last comments. You know, and specifically, any comments you have on how you think, you know, if you had to grade the governments on their performance and guiding the narrative of what's going on and trying to trying to come up with a credible policy that, that everyone can get behind, what, how do you think that they're doing? I'll start with you, Mukhtar. In terms of Russian conflict, that will be, um, uh, that will have more impact on the society. And it will become, it is becoming more and more clear that uh, the uh, society is polarizing. Government has uh, to do a lot in terms of solving these uh, conflicting narratives in the country, in the society in general. But the other conflicts, I think, with the Azerbaijani and uh, Armenian and uh, Gaza conflict, I think they. Uh, the governments uh, will try to use uh, them for their sake, in terms of uh, the solving this to, in a diplomatic way. For example, the uh, Kazakh government is uh, supporting the idea of reforming the um, Security Council of the United Nations in general. And this will be the chance for them to use these issues as, uh, as an example for their rhetoric. Okay, thank you. So, John, how do you, how about Tajikistan? How's the government doing in controlling the narrative and, and trying to get something out of this? You know, 
the narration is under control all the time in Tajikistan, uh, no matter what is going on in the world. But as a last uh, thing, I, I want to say that uh, for all those conflicts, uh, Azerbaijan, Armenian, and uh, in, in, in Ukraine, all what happened, you know, uh, as a journalist, we need to judge by actions, not by statements. They, their statements could, could, could be, they, there could be a lot of different statements. But what is real action there? Since the Azerbaijani war, uh, the Tajik government is uh, going closer and closer to Iran. And uh, probably, uh, as one uh, of experts uh, put it, uh, it's because uh, of Turkey, uh, Turkey role in the, not only in Azerbaijan but in the region, as I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, so, and uh, we are seeing that how Turkey-speaking countries uh, in the region are uh, coming together. Uh, this time, excluding Tajikistan, probably all all of them, and also what is going on in in the Middle East, uh, uh, they uh, pushed the Tajik government, and and of course, as Joseph mentioned, uh, weak Russia. Uh, this is not the Russia that was, uh, let's say, five years ago, and uh, of course, being being a close neighbor to China. Uh, a lot of um, different uh, factors probably push the Tajik government to go closer to Iran and to forget uh, a lot of things that Bruce, you know better than me if uh, to remember that uh, how uh, Tajikistan and Tajik officials, there was a lot of Tajik documentaries on, on the state media accusing Iran uh, as a as some some as country that ignited civil war, supported opposition, even uh, responsible for a lot of political killings during the war and, and years after, and inviting the head of the Islamic Renaissance Party, Moedim Kabiri, to some conference, and so on and so on. Now it's looking like everything uh, in the past, everything is in history. And Tajikistan uh, is receiving every day a new and new delegation of Iran, and Iran is receiving the Tajik delegation. And uh, uh, after tomorrow, the Tajik president, uh, uh, Iranian president Reis, he will visit uh, Tajikistan. And what is in the core of the agenda is security and military cooperation. Okay, thank you. And I, Joseph, uh, you get the last word on this. Uh, you know, again, how do you think rating the Central Asian government's response to this? Uh, do they show that they're in control of the situation and the narrative that they're giving to the people? Or does it look like they're kind of running back and forth trying to just practice damage control? I think they're somewhat in control of the narrative. For example, they have all made somewhat neutral statements, I would say, with the exception of Uzbekistan, which has taken a harder pro-Palestinian stance. They have also done everything they can to prevent uh, protests in the streets. At the same time, however, when it comes to the media narrative, as I mentioned earlier, it is very one-sided. And of course, when people at home are seeing images of women and children dying, fellow Muslims, and they don't 
understand why, then of course it has the potential to really galvanize the population. When you look at other countries around the region, they also have their influence on the foreign policy of Central Asian leaders. For example, China, Russia, Iran, and Turkey, all very important partners in the region, have been very pro-Palestinian, and Russia and Turkey have gone so far as to legitimize Hamas. Of course, Turkey has given Hamas safe haven for a very long time. It gives them Turkish passports. Erdogan said it's a liberation organization and not a terrorist group. Russia just accepted a delegation of Hamas. And uh, later, a Hamas representative actually said that Russia is their closest ally. So I think, for example, leaders like Mirziyoyev, who who has been more pro-Palestinian, are trying to galvanize Russian and Turkish support by taking a more pro-Palestinian position. However, I do think that their greatest concern, that Uzbekistan's greatest concern should be, for example, is not becoming another Afghanistan. So while I think they have tried to respond to the narrative and have done a good job at responding to it, they haven't done a good job in controlling it. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you, Salim John, Joseph, and Mukhtar for being on the program. And a big thanks, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asian Focus Center by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfrl.org. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.